A reading from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, starting with verse 11. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel." I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will just destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until they are, you have driven them away, I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken." The word of the Lord. A reading from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, starting with verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God, our Lord, Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of, the riches of his glorious inheritance to his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority. Power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel according to St. Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. 
I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes to clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. Um, my name is Jessica. Welcome, everybody, to Christ the King Sunday um, and to Sacrament Church. Um, I was thinking this morning how weird it is that I'm preaching. It's not something I ever, like, foresaw myself doing years ago. Um, and it was, it reminded me of a story that has nothing to do with anything, but I'm going to tell it because my mom's here. <laughs> there she is. So, <laughs> she, years ago... Um, when I was still in college, or maybe I just finished college. It was a long time ago. Um, and we, I was home from, I was living in Cincinnati, um, and we came home for this passion conference, like the early 2000s. That was like a cool church thing to do is go to passion conferences. It was like Louis Giglio and all those people. Yeah, all the old people are nodding with me. Um, so it was like me and a group of friends from Cincinnati wanted to go because the Passion Conference was in Nashville, so we were staying at my parents' house. They live in Lebanon. Um, and it was like, you know, all these sessions during the day, and we were not really at their house very much, but we appreciated them letting us all stay there. Um, and Beth Moore was a speaker there, and, like, I, I didn't really like her back then. <laughs> Now I think she's adorable, but, like, I didn't really appreciate her, like, southern drippy thing back then. Um, and I remember my mom always loved her. And I guess that's why I thought of this story, because, like, now I'm preaching a sermon. I don't know why I thought, what that has to do with anything. But the funny part is that the conference was going on, on during the weekend of my mom's birthday, January 3rd. And there was, like, we were at the conference all day, and I totally forgot that it was my mom's birthday the whole time, even though I'd like seen her in the morning probably and <laughs> the night before and um, was staying at her house. And so after being at the conference, I think we went to like dinner at Chili's and a movie and I, we were in the movie and I was like, oh, it's my mom's birthday. Like it hit me and then I had forgot about it and like had seen her and not even told her happy birthday, like the biggest jerk. Um, <laughs> so... We, like, rushed home from the movie, and, I mean, it was a late movie. It was probably, like, 
right before midnight, and we like all five of us, my friends that were staying in our house, just like came into my parents' room and woke them up to tell my mom happy birthday. And they were just like, what's going on? Um, but they were still really gracious about it. And she didn't disown me. for She wasn't mad at me the next day for forgetting her birthday and then waking her up in the middle of the night to tell her happy birthday. Anyways, that story has nothing to do with anything, but I really like that story about what a loser I am sometimes and how gracious you are. Um, so yeah, my parents, they're great. So um, yeah, good morning again. Oh, I guess I'll start that sermon now, just like just like I'm Beth Moore or something. Um, she probably has better ways to start her sermon. But so our Old Testament reading today that um, Trisha started with is from Ezekiel, which is a wild book. So Ezekiel is a prophet who was a part of the um, the exile in Babylon. And Ezekiel is away from the temple where he is supposed to be a priest, but he can't because he's in exile. Um, so then he has this like crazy vision of a king-like figure on a throne. And it's held up by these four winged creatures, and they have four faces, and they're like floating around um, on wheel-like things. Uh, it's a really crazy picture to try to imagine. Um, but he calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So this is kind of like the way that the glory of God is appearing to him um, in kind of a physical manifestation of his glory. So then the vision, this glory of the Lord vision, commissions Ezekiel as a prophet. He's doing all these crazy like performance art things to show Israel all of God's accusations against them. So there's a lot of judgment in the book of Ezekiel. It's a heavy on the judgment. <laughs> so... Um, they, but the, the judgment is pretty much so extreme that um, that's what's led to their exile in Babylon and God's presence has left the temple in Jerusalem and gone to Babylon to be with his people in exile. So there's a whole bunch more judgment and stuff in like the first 30 chapters um, against Israel and against all the nations around them. And then in chapter 33, Jerusalem... And the temple itself is destroyed by Babylon. So the temple was the symbol of God's dwelling with his people and where he was present with them. So what could seem more hopeless than that just being destroyed and disappearing? But that's not the end of the story. The part where we heard in chapter 34, um, the book transitions to hope in that chapter. So now it begins to sound like a new message of redemption. It's kind of, some people call it um, the gospel of Ezekiel. So even for these lost, rebellious people, they've been worshiping other gods. They've been just completely not following God's law. They seem so undeserving. Ezekiel says that God's presence will be with them. And this time there's going to be a new messianic shepherd king in the line of David. So David... He's already been king. He's already gone. His whole royal line is gone, in fact. And the last Davidic king is also off in Babylon in the exile. So now God is promising that he will deliver his people and make it right himself. And he will be their shepherd, and he will provide a new David who will not just lead the people, but atone for the sins that have brought such great judgments. So like David, Ezekiel says this new king will be a shepherd. And of course, we hear this now, and this is one of those times where we go, oh, that's, that's Christ appearing in the Old Testament. We know who he's talking about. Um, 
But the people listening to Ezekiel might have just thought, oh, he's bringing back the line of David. We're going to get a, a king in the line of David again. So he also talks a lot about the previous kings and the previous leaders of Israel. They are also called shepherds in this metaphor, but they are failures. They are bad leaders, bad shepherds. So back in verse 8, before what we read, he says, My shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. It's really uh, easy to automatically count yourself as a member of the flock by default, a member of the people led astray by these bad leaders, right? It's not in our nature to assume the role of the bad leader or the victimizer when we're hearing these stories. And we certainly have a lot of bad examples of bad leaders um, in our time. So the church seems to be in this time where we have this endless cycle of beloved leaders and pastors becoming publicly disgraced in various disgraceful ways. Um, These are people who are maybe in it to glorify and feed themselves, not the flock, like Ezekiel was saying. Maybe people who are just using their platform of speaking to God's church, and they're using it for glorifying themselves instead, or they're using it in ways that just embarrass us or frustrate us as Christians, especially when we see other Christians following them um, and being led astray by them. There's, there's all kinds of situations in our world today of this going on. But I was reminded recently by my pastor friend, uh, Derek, he was... We were talking about all these like streaming documentaries of all these like disgraced leaders that you can watch right now. They're just everywhere, um, and you know he reminded me that it's probably a good idea to not constantly consume these stories as just kind of this infor- infotainment of failure, like being in- entertained by all this failure, um, because there's just only so much of that you can consume before it's spiritually detrimental. But maybe that can help us relate in a small way to Israel's bad leadership problem. The harder part, even, is to search that in myself and to think of myself as, well, who has been entrusted to me as a shepherd? My kids, uh, my second-grade students, I'm a teacher, my coworkers and all the people I encounter every day. How often do I choose to feed myself and my own needs ahead of them? How often do I choose my own comfort or my own ego over serving them with the heart of Jesus, with Jesus' shepherd heart? And how often do I forget that I'm I'm really encountering Christ's image in them? So farther back in verse 4, the judgment against these bad shepherds cuts even deeper. It says, those who are sickly you have not strengthened, The diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. Sounds like a little uh, foreshadowing of our gospel reading to me. So what a huge contrast between our shepherd king Christ and the strongman leaders of this world. It becomes really clear here. So many in our culture think that they want a domineering, confrontational leader to just get things done and to use force. But imagine living in the ancient world. The ancient world is so much more brutal and tribal even than our 
our culture, just worse than we can imagine in the, in the ways that tribes war against each other um, and the way the culture was. And imagine just wanting a king without those things, without force and without severity. A king that instead will lovingly seek after every single scattered sheep in the flock. A king that takes it on himself to bind up and heal and a king who stinks like his own sheep because he chooses to be with them. Walter Brueggemann says, in a, world, in a word, good leadership consists in the restoration of the common good so that all members of the community, strong and weak, rich and poor, may live together in a common shalom of shared resources. It is not enough to recite in pious tones the 23rd Psalm about the Lord is my shepherd. What is envisioned and required is the formation of a different leadership that has in purview all members of the community. Ezekiel knew that is the only way to have a future that does not replicate the failed past. It is still among us the only way. So what I hear there is that when we claim the Lord is my shepherd, the implication is that we must also follow him by caring the most for the weakest among us. So that leads us to our epistle reading, which Elsie read last minute. Thank you, Elsie, for doing that. Um, so this is Paul talking about the inheritance of the saints. Our culture tends to think about inheritance as like our future trip to heaven that we get far off place, but Paul here is kind of talking as if we can know and live this inheritance now. So how? How is that possible? How do we do that now? To live as if eternal life and the kingdom of heaven is already here. Paul tells us in Ephesians that this kind of life is already available to us. It's our inheritance as the communion of saints, the communion of sheep saints. In verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. So this sounds like Paul is going with a classic three-point sermon here. He gives us three things. So what are the things available to us now that our shepherd king is already on the throne, already seated at the Father's right hand, already brought his kingdom to earth in his resurrection. So the three things he lists are hope in the future, hope in the future fullness of that, that kingdom that he has brought, belonging in his family, his family of saints, and access to the power of his resurrection. These are the things of eternal life. So imagine viewing everything in our lives this way through these these principles of Christ the King's hope, his belonging and his family, and his power. What would we have to fear if we lived this way? When I feel threatened or insecure because I got less than stellar evaluations at work or something along those lines, I would know that I have my first belonging in his family. When I feel defensive because someone was unfair or accusatory towards me, or I'm in a disagreement with a coworker, anything like that, I could lean on the Spirit's power to resurrect that relationship. When I worry about people I love or try to have too much control over them, so things will turn out for them the way I think they should, I can stop and remember the hope I have in his calling, 
a calling to love them and not control them. That's really hard for moms sometimes. <laughs> I hope that God's love for them is far more perfect and wise than mine. And think how generous we would live, how generous I could be if I realized I already have all the eternal riches of the glory of his inheritance. I could truly live with open hands towards everyone. We do have the ability to live this way, not in ourselves, but because of the Holy Spirit. So farther back in verse 13, before uh, we started reading, Paul says, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So Father Preston calls this like a deposit or a down payment on our future inheritance. The Holy Spirit itself is our deposit. Uh, We can already live like we have the inheritance of the king because he gave us the deposit of the Holy Spirit with a view to the future redemption of all God's kingdom for God's own glory. This uh, dual citizenship idea, this idea that we already live in the kingdom of God, um, but we also live here on earth, is is really an idea that I think about a lot, and I feel like um, it's a question that Christians disagree about a lot, probably one of the main things Christians disagree about. Like, do we disengage altogether, and do we just live in our own communities away from any ideas of the world that could corrupt us? Do we just always obey governing authorities and their laws without question, even if laws are unjust? Do we work to get our people in those positions of power so we can just control everything and feel really good about living in a country that matches our morality, at least on paper? Or do we force progress ourselves through always being subversive to worldly powers? Is that how the kingdom of heaven comes? Paul is telling us that Christ has already put all these things under his subjection. The dominion is already his. And how did that kind of power work? It wasn't by force. It was by sacrificial love of enemies, even unto death, and then resurrection. So imagine if our political calculus for living in this world now just began with enemy love. Imagine if my spiritual practice for the coming election year was just praying for and speaking love for the guy that I'm not voting for. It kind of, kind of gives me the creeps to think about, but that, that means that I should probably do that, and I'm like publicly committed to it right now. <laughs> so that kind of approach, is, it's not going to win any votes or arguments, but it would certainly stand out among today's rhetoric, and it would point to a different kind of power and a hope and a belonging that we have in a different kingdom. So that brings us to our gospel reading. The gospel reading is a depiction of judgment. Again, um, the last several weeks of readings have been pretty difficult. They've been parables that um, Jesus has told and that can sound really harsh and confusing. Uh, But we know that judgment is a bringing of truth to the light, all the truth made known, brought to light. So Bruce Milne says, it is in this life that we first meet God, in the needy brothers and sisters of Jesus, and perhaps especially in the least of them. What will we hear on Judgment Day, or what we will hear on Judgment Day, will be familiar, only too familiar. 
Every moment as we respond to these claims to one degree or another, whether in affirmation and assent or in rebellion and dissent, we are meeting our judge. Judgment is the stuff of life. The final judgment will simply bring it all together. I like this idea because it brings judgment to the here and now, as in justice and truth being done here and now. It's what we long for as humans. It's, what, it's why we, we feel so much wrong is in this world. We deeply feel that things are wrong, and we long for it to, made, to be made right. But we've, we've kind of been conditioned in our certain cultures or ways that we read the Bible to think that this is only happening in the end or when Jesus returns again to judge the living and the dead, like we say in our creed, right? But in our gospel, Jesus is saying this right before he is plotted against and arrested and crucified. This is the last parable he gives before all that happens. And he begins by saying, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So this makes us think that he's not talking about some end times judgment where he sorts everyone out. He's talking about his imminent resurrection. That is the event that put him on the throne as Christ the King that conquered death and began his kingdom of the already, not yet. So the contrast between the sheep and the goats is meant to illustrate to us what that kingdom looks like by making a really stark contrast. We humans, we love a moral lesson to be in black and white. It makes things easy, right? I'll be a sheep. Then I'll just I'll listen to this and I'll be a sheep and not a goat. And so everyone I disagree with, I can judge them as moral degenerates. They must be the goats. My first honest inclination when reading this particular passage is to just make a moral checklist for myself. Feed the hungry, invite in the strangers, clothe the naked, visit sick people and prisoners. Great. I can make a list. I've done some of that stuff before, right? I even like doing that stuff sometimes because it makes me feel really awesome and super moral. So I must be in. I must be a sheep. But then anxiety kicks in. (laughs) These are sins of omission, right? They're not sins of commission. We confess that we have sinned against you by what we have done and by what we have left undone. So I've done some of that stuff, but what if I haven't done enough? What about all those times I acted like the self-feeding, selfish shepherds from Ezekiel? So as you can see, this becomes kind of a nightmare if you're like a highly anxious or obsessive person and you're always worried about if you have done enough. So maybe moralizing this story doesn't exactly work. And in fact, it makes us rely more on ourselves and our charitable checklists than relying on Christ our King. So maybe the whole point of the parable isn't exactly to show us a checklist to do, to be good sheep. The sheep didn't even know they were being good sheep. They were surprised by this news, which makes me think they weren't trying very hard at it. Remember, Paul told us today that we have an inheritance as children of the king just because of his grace toward us, not as a reward we earned because we tried really hard and we did all the things on a checklist. He said that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us participate in this upside-down resurrection kingdom 
here and now, not just to help us feel moral or better than goats. But that leaves us with this tension, right? It's by grace that we get in, but participating in the kingdom, it does require something of us. It requires us to let the Holy Spirit turn our own values upside down so that our values match that kingdom much more than they match the kingdoms of this world and their value, values. The, the values of building wealth and success and comfort or safety or building political power brought about by aligning with some silly political party or even just our own internal kingdoms of feeling morally superior and judgmental as we move through the world trying to sort out sheeps and goats ourselves. So what are the values that our king has? They are found among the greatest need, among the least of these. Those physical needs matter to our king in the here and now. The Archbishop Rowan Williams writes, Christians will be found in the neighborhood of Jesus, but Jesus is found in the neighborhood of human confusion and suffering, defenselessly alongside those in need. If being baptized is being led to where Jesus is, then being baptized is being led towards the chaos and the need neediness of a humanity that has forgotten its own destiny. This means that Christ the King and his kingdom is already found with the sick and the imprisoned and the hungry and the refugees. It also means that Christ is found with each of us in our own greatest times of need. So I'm going to end here with Father Preston's sending words that he, he always uh, writes into his sermon preparation, which he so graciously shared with me. Um, they're always my favorite part of his sermons, so I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. This is what he says. May we be a people shaped by the joy of God's kingdom, not counting on our own good works, but embodying the abundance of God's love. May we know this different kind of power, and may we know God's presence at the point of our need. Amen.